Ryan Hoover played professional basketball in Italy for about 17 years. Ryan Hoover grew up in Rockford, Illinois, near, went to Boylan High School, was one of Rockford's best ever basketball players. I know this because I grew up later um, in Belvedere, Illinois, same conference um, in Northern Illinois. So um, just kind of down the road from, from Ryan, I was a terrible basketball player, so even if I was young enough to meet him, I never would have met him <laughs> on the court. Um, but I, but I want to tell you this because this young man, Ryan Hoover, went on striving for an NBA career like most awesome basketball players in America do. He ended up, though, in an international kind of capacity. He played all over America. He played in some pretty prestigious tournaments. He got noticed. Then he went to Venezuela for a year or two. And then he went to Italy. He landed in Cantu, Italy, in the Lombardy region. I mean, Put the sermon on pause and look that up on your Google Maps. If you had a choice between ending up in Detroit with the Pistons or Cantu with whatever that basketball team was called, you would be hard-pressed even as a go-getter basketball player. This young man was amazing. I mean, look at, this, look at this picture of him. I mean, I would not want to be defending that guy. He was an impressive, impressive guy. One of the best in the Rockford, in Rockford High School history. Has records at Notre Dame for three-point and other shooting. And more importantly, is now a follower of Jesus Christ who loves him with his whole heart, mind, and soul. What I want to tell you about Ryan, oh, by the way, they called him while he was over in Italy, they called him Il Soldato, or the soldier, because, okay, I don't really know how to speak Italian. If that is kind of a fake accent for all you Italians out there, I'm sorry about that. It just sounds kind of cool to say it like that, like I'm Il Soldato. But they call him Il Soldato because the only Ryan they've ever heard of is Saving Private Ryan, and the, and the movie title there in Italian is The Soldier Ryan, Il Soldato. So anyway, so this soldier Ryan, <laughs> fearsome hard worker, great three-point shooter, He's famous throughout Italy, and in one game that his coach really needed for them to win, they were playing a better team, and so his, his tactic was, the coach's tactic was, he was gonna switch Ryan off of his phenomenal three-point shooting and his, his kind of mostly offensive role, and kind of game management role, and he put him in defense. And so in a defensive role, he didn't score as many points, but he did what he had to do to keep their studs point guard under control and his team won the game. The thing is, in this town, they had a newspaper report every day, every morning after the basketball game with a report card. I mean, we have sports writers and we have opinion columnists about how different uh, players play after a game, but they had a numerical, a numerical grade and after this phenomenal lights out defensive performance, I mean Rodman-esque from what I understand, he got a four out of 10. How heartbreaking, right? You, 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 your coach asks you to step up and do something different. You do it amazingly well, and you get a 40% on the test that everybody knows about, everybody's talking about, and they're wondering, well, where'd this, where'd happen to the good American player? You know, and I wonder if that's how kind of life is with us in our sense of scorecards, right? Sometimes what the public sees and evaluates us on is not what the coach sees and evaluates us on. And so the topic today, scorecard, asks the question, whose scores do we value the most? Whose score do we strive for? And we're gonna look at that today in the life of Jesus. Last week, I taught you in the video sermon about this little episode where Jesus gets confronted by Pharisees 
who are trying to trap him with a question about divorce. They don't really care about divorce. Basically, divorce for them was a pretty good deal because you got to marry who you wanted or whoever you could, whoever you could uh, arrange with their father to marry. If they got old or you didn't like them anymore or they weren't as good a cook as the next potential wife you saw, you could write them a bill of divorce, hand it to them, off they had to go, and then you got to marry a new wife, right? I mean, it was serial monogamy, but it was approved by the Levitical law. So they asked him whether divorce was okay, more or less. And he answered to them, which I taught you last week on. But what Jesus tried to do in that interchange was to get them to realize that they were seeing their spouses incorrectly and seeing marriage incorrectly. They were, they were seeing their wives as a means to an end instead of a masterpiece of God's own creation. They were looking at their marriage with a scorecard instead of as a symphony of, of two different kinds of instruments playing together differently but making a beautiful music together. That sounds kind of tacky or cheap, right? Or kind of uh, soapy, but, but to look at marriage like that. And this week, this week there's some other things I want us to look at. But Jesus isn't just asking us to see things differently. He's asking us to score things differently. And this episode I want you to look at now, it's not probably the most pivotal episode in the whole watch party of last week, but it is pretty cool because this time he has the conservative legalists, the Pharisees, and he's got the kind of more laid-back, money-making, kind of establishment conservatives, right? The oh, Chamber of Commerce folks, right? We're trying to make money, keep business flowing, and keep people employed, that sort of thing. Both of these guys, both of these groups of people are getting worried about Jesus and, and the kind of popular uprising that he could cause and that the, the Romans would come and smash not just their religious rules like the Pharisees were worried about, but they're going to smash their economy like the Herodians were worried about. So they get together and they ask him this tricky question, which they kind of cared about probably more than divorce. Take a look. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Okay, that is one of my favorite scenes in the whole Gospel of Mark. Like, if I had a, a Jesus scene tournament, that would be like in the Sweet 16. Pretty awesome. And, and speaking, of, speaking of tournaments, um, let's turn just a brief moment to the NCAA. You might have noticed that I'm wearing a green and white uh, sweatshirt um, emblazoned with the name of my alma mater, Michigan State University. Um, formerly and occasionally a powerhouse NCAA basketball and sometimes football institution. However, last night 
before the NCAA March Madness tournament even started, <clears throat> Michigan State lost to UCLA in overtime in a play-in game. So, the pain. You know, when, when Michigan State plays, and I have the ability to watch it, because I, I don't always, um, I have two different shirts that I wear, either during or after. So this one, the, the kind of darker, more discreet Michigan State sweatshirt is my, we played, maybe played well, maybe we played super well and were robbed, but we played and we lost. This is that shirt. When we... Uh, I just brought this here because I thought I should shoot baskets in, this, in the church gym before I, before I preach. So that was from this. Um, and there's, uh, hold on. Anyway, when we play and win, I wear something much more like, here it is. And I wear it like to everywhere there's people, which in my life is basically a church um, in Costco. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm wearing this. And I'll have it on when I go to Costco, just because I'm like, if I'm going to wear it when we win, I'm going to wear it when we lose. Um, if you invited me to more parties, people, um, I would wear it there too. And I would wear this one even if we did win, because I tend to spill when you invite me over to your house for parties. So anyway, we played and we lost. I'm wearing this shirt. And um, what I did want to share, the new thing, is that one of my nieces goes to University of Michigan. She is an amazing young lady. She is sweet, she's funny, and her brother um, goes to Notre Dame. Um, that's him with his uh, little brother. And uh, he's about uh, the most polite, gallant, hardworking, just totally go-getter young men I've ever met. And they're awesome golden kids. But I tell you, it's a hard family to visit wearing a Michigan State shirt, I will just tell you. So I've told you the story about my life as a Michigan State football fan once or twice, right? When you go to a Michigan State, University of Michigan football game, um, regardless of which stadium it's in, so I, I didn't travel to Ann Arbor for them, I just watched when they were coming to East Lansing. And so if you're winning, kind of like you would with any team, and you're like blowing them away, then you do the, you know, na 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 na, hey hey hey, goodbye, which was always a good time. Um, however, they would do that to us if they were winning, the problem was, even after we did that, when we were winning, then the student section across the field would normally come back with what I call the we don't care anyway cheer, which was, that's all right, that's okay, you're going to work for us someday. And I remember as a freshman hearing that, being like, oh my gosh, did you guys hear that? That's terrible. And of course, then my friends, who were nearly all from Michigan would like yell and nasty things back, um, un, unrepeatable things back. And then they would look at one another, you know, being members of an honors college, somehow I got on that floor. And they're like, well, statistically, that's probably true, right? I mean, you got to admit. And yeah, everybody that I knew from undergrad who went to like, got a PhD or went to med school, they went to Ann Arbor. So it really, it really was a thing. I ran into a professor one week after one of those football games and we had the, that's all right, that's okay, you're going to work for us someday chant painfully in the back of our heads. And I asked him how his weekend was, and he told me that his niece was there at the game because he, her family and he, the professor, had 
decided to make it a weekend and kind of show her the student, the, the campus where their uncle worked and that sort of thing. And he said they were having an amazing time. The weather was great. It was a fun football game until she heard the chant. And when she heard the chant, she stopped being so excited and for the rest of the trip was kind of like critical and down. So I, uh, I, I said, oh, I'm really sorry about that. But nowadays, I'm, I'm looking back and thinking, imagine being a disciple of Jesus. And if you heard that kind of, I mean, a little bit of cross-stadium smack talk would demoralize someone who had been otherwise excited to go to school there. Imagine being someone who wanted to follow Jesus and you were, you were all set because you'd seen his miracles and you'd heard his teachings and you, you knew people that had been healed and you longed to do something with your life for the kingdom of God. You wanted your scorecard to be filled out by the Father and not by the world. And you're all set to go. And then you hear this. This is Jesus' words. <clears throat> Watch out you'll be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. A brother will betray his brother to death and a father will betray his own child and children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed and everyone will hate you because you're my followers. I mean, imagine paying money to get that sort of diploma, right? What's the payoff? Imagine giving up all you have to follow Jesus for that kind of outcome. Well, there's another scene in the last, last video watching party that I, that I wanted to show you because I think it sets up the scorecard issue really well. This is the scene which you probably have read or heard dozens of times at least. This is the scene called the rich young ruler. And it's from the Mark version. So there, there are several versions in the Bible. It's from the Mark one. And I want you to watch it and listen to it and ask yourself, what price have I paid or said no to paying to follow Jesus? Take a look. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Look at these. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, 
then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So would you say you have paid a price for following Jesus? And I don't mean that like the silly culture war stuff of having people tell you happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas or, or getting like wrapped around a pole about evolution versus creation or, or be, being the poor Christian guy in the lunchroom who's trying to, trying to win an argument with an atheist coworker, right? I mean, I don't mean that stuff. I mean the stuff that really, really can force you to pay a price. I mean, having a job that you've longed for and that you love or that you think you're gonna love and then finding out it's gonna have to bend you backwards over your values and, and you decide, you know what, even at work, I'm gonna have to live a life worthy of my calling as a follower of Jesus. And so you have to leave. I'm talking about saying yes to showing the, the fruits of the Spirit in your action, your interactions with, with other people instead of showing the easy candy of the sweets and reward of going along with what the crowd is saying. I'm saying yes. I mean saying yes to honoring your marriage vows more strongly and even if that means the somewhat embarrassing or awkward step of backing away from some of the temptations you've kind of gotten close to exploring. I'm talking about confronting your maybe religiously privileged family who seems to have everything working for them and a pretty strong idea of why they're so successful and challenging them to quit measuring people with their eyes and start treasuring them with God's. I'm talking about how you challenge a fellow Christian to stop wondering out loud or on Facebook what's wrong with those people and instead asking what does love require? What does Jesus' love require of us on behalf of those people? Anyone who enrolls in the Jesus University, right? Anyone who's signed up to be a follower, a methetes, a learner behind Jesus is most likely going to lose points in life. You're going to find yourself being rejected, insulted, taking a second or third chair instead of the first one. You're going to find yourself having to say no to opportunities that the non-Jesus following you might be able to say yes to. And you're going to say yes to things that you normally wouldn't, to picking up staples out of carpet in an, in an elementary school lounge. You're going to say yes to things like stopping to help where you wouldn't have stopped before, like writing a check and postponing a vacation that you wouldn't have had to do before. It's all part of being on the adventure of following Jesus. Early on, as the religion of Christianity was beginning, the, the earliest Jesus followers called it the way, the path that you follow Jesus on. It wasn't called a new church, a new sect, a new religion. They were part of the Jewish family at first, but they were following the way of Jesus. Yeah, in the middle of that scary paragraph that I just read you about being arrested and your father betraying you to the death and, and children hating you and things like this. Jesus said this. I'm going to read it for you. But this will be your opportunity to tell them, the people who are arresting, hating, and betraying you. This will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must be preached to all people. 
But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what you are to say. Just say what God tells you at that time, for it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Isn't that that amazing? That we can trust that if we behave in a way that gives, not a perfect way, we know that, but if we behave in a way that's going to, by and large, with our very best efforts, despite our failings and trips and screw-ups and embarrassments, give a witness of goodness to Jesus Christ and the gospel, the Holy Spirit will have our back. He might let us be derided, but he won't let us be quiet. He will let us be insulted, but he won't leave us without insight. He will he'll let us be in pain, but he won't leave us without purpose. No. You know, I've been reading a lot of Brennan Manning. I'm re- reading the Ragamuffin Gospel. I'm getting that ready for a, for a new Caprari class that I'll be, I'll be teaching in the fall. And I'm, I'm, so I'm reading different books. And, and Brennan Manning said this um, about our score in life. He said, Uncompromis- Uncompromising trust in the love of God inspires us to thank God for the spiritual darkness that envelops us, for our loss of income, for the nagging arthritis that's so painful, and to pray from the heart, Abba, Father, into your hands, I entrust my body, mind, and spirit for this entire day, morning, afternoon, evening, and night. Whatever you want of me, I want of me. Falling into you and trusting in you in the midst of my life, into your heart, I entrust my heart, feeble, distracted, insecure, uncertain. Abba, unto you I abandon myself. In Jesus our Lord, amen. In other words, whether you're scoring poorly, you're losing fans, friends, wealth, or health, God God draws near to you in your your low-scoring moments, in your low-scoring life, in your low-scoring spirit. In fact, I hear Manning suggesting that we might have a better relationship with God and a bigger impact on the world when we're losing than when we're winning. You see, because when we're losing, we need to trust him more. When God uses me when I'm losing my life, I'm, I thank him for giving him my dignity and my purpose back. But if God uses me when I'm winning at life, well, I'm flattered and I'm happy to help God. And I got to say, I appreciate you calling on me to use myself because, uh, yeah, I got stuff to offer. But the problem with that is I can be so full of myself that I have no room to be full of Jesus. And a winning scorecard without Jesus is the entirely wrong game. No, I think if we are too full of ourselves that we can't be full of Jesus, God's going to do us a favor and empty us so that there's room. In one stroke, when he talked to the rich young ruler, he dared him. He dared him to do something beyond the things that he was already good at, beyond following the rules that he already followed. He dared him to do something that was much harder than making money, keeping money, honestly, even giving money away. Those of us that have a lifetime history of being generous, we know that's part of the reason we're so happy, right? If you, if you don't cling to your money but hold on to it with open arms, it's not hard to give it away. Okay, now in my case, 
it is pretty intense that we, we score a good deal on stuff, right, at Costco or with coupons and stuff. But, but once, I, once I have money, right, I want to give it to places and people who need it. I want to give it to the work of God at my church. Okay, that's easy compared to what Jesus asked the, the rich young ruler to do. I was talking about this uh, this morning, actually, in the Friday morning men's uh, Bible study. And the, a number of guys were talking about, boy, how hard that would be to, to give up all that you've earned. And, and, and I, got, I got to thinking, actually, from another watch party that, that we'd watch this in, I got to thinking, you know, obviously it's a little bit about money, but that's not the main thing. The problem with the, with the rich young ruler wasn't that he'd have to give all his stuff away, because probably if he'd gotten that rich, he could get that rich again, right? I mean, maybe not completely, but he, he would land on his feet. The problem was Jesus was asking him to give away the scorecard that his life had been successful with and start a new one. Start a new one which was completely foreign to him. Not the following rules part, he loved God that way, but the following Jesus part, that was something new. And, and it makes me think that the goal that Jesus was trying to get him to see in life was that the goal of life, of course it's not about money, but it's also not about security. And it's also not about certainty. It's about trust. It's about trusting that God has an adventure in store for you that's going to be more amazing even with the downs than your life right now would ever be. It's about trust. The trust that's the gateway, the free, the gateway to freedom. It's the trust that's the, the ticket to adventure. It's the trust that's the on-ramp to generosity and joy. And it's the trust that's the safety net under most of the risks that we take. The trust is that my primary identity is not as a winner in the world's eyes or a loser, if that's what happens. My primary identity is as a child of God. My primary role in life is being a child who delights that God loved me so much that he gave his own life to bring me back home. You know, the crazy thing about trust is, too, that you can't will yourself to trust somebody. You can, you can will yourself to do behaviors that go along with trust. I'm going to trust this person and sign this contract, for instance, right? I'm going to trust this man and say yes to marrying him. Those are actions. But, but trust that comes from the heart, the, the trust that God wants from us, that Jesus wants from us, isn't trust that we can commit to out of will. It's a response to what we've noticed a response to what we've learned. And so we, we don't trust people willy-nilly. We trust the people in whom we've noticed integrity and kindness, consistency and faithfulness, from whom we've experienced grace and forgiveness. Trust is a response. And so, hopefully, you trust your spouse. You trust your parents, if you've been lucky. You trust, I hope, your pastors, your teachers, your coaches. You trust people, but your Heavenly Father is the only one who's completely worthy of that trust. Your Heavenly Father who doesn't abandon you, who doesn't, doesn't abuse you or leave you adrift or alone, who doesn't, who doesn't walk away or smite you when you're raging or cursing or regretting or hurting. Trust is a reaction 
to someone who loves you so much that there's nothing you can do but say, I want to give more of myself to you. I want to empty what's keeping me too full so I can be more full of you. That's the kind of love that God wants from you, from me. And that's the kind of love that Jesus came to earth and died on a cross to make possible. Yeah, your Heavenly Father is the only one who doesn't really care about your earthly scorecard. Whether you've been running, <laughs> racking up wins or whether you've been racking up losses, you probably care far more about your earthly scorecard than God does. Because, because to not care about the losses in your column means that you care about the worth that somebody else gives you. Not the crowd, not the newspaper afterwards, not the Facebook likes, the retweets, the numbers in your evaluation review. No, God's scorecard for you has just one box. No sins, no sainthoods, it has one box. And the question next to it is, does she trust me? Does he trust me? And when the answer is yes, we have victory. Victory in Jesus Christ our Lord and in his eyes. We are not worthless. We are not winners and we are not losers. We are precious. And we ought to feel great. Amen.